Hey, welcome, adventurers, to episode 85 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We got a special level back episode. This is just Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And Teacher Ryan. And on a level back episode, that means we're going to be looking at games that are at least four years old. So, guys, let's keep it to 2019 and earlier. That's going to be all of our recent play. Well, I'll accept one of our recent plays that's actually coming to Kickstarter, like, around the time this airs. But that's going to include our review game, today's review game, Obsession. And Explorer Josh even gets in on the level back. We'll hear from him after. And even Explorer yeah, Josh gets in on the... words, good. <laughs> Stop it. This is hard. It's, uh, yeah, it's not script or anything. How are we doing, guys? <laughs> You've only been doing this for 85 episodes. <laughs> no, doing well, doing quite well. I mean, it's January, so you have, in Western Pennsylvania, you can have days where you have two, maybe three seasons in a day. So it's been quite wonderful. But yeah, I mean, I'm just enjoying getting my game room set up and playing games and really getting busy with stuff. Mm-hmm. You sent that picture. You got games mounted on the wall. You got the shelves holding the games up. That looks, Scott, that looks classy. I have those up there. So it's kind of like games that I want to play and like stick them right up there. So they're always like, hey, play me, play me. So uh, once <laughs> Doom comes down, Obsession's going back up there. It's going to be all good. And yes, I must say, once again, Ryan, thank you so very, very much. Oh, I can play the Rudy music. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since we first played it at Origins last year, in fact, you have just been head over heels infatuated with this game. Might I say even obsessed with this game. Oh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know. That was lame, and I'm so sorry. But anyway, <laughs> ever since then, I know you've been just aching to have, like, a physical copy of it. And I just decided, you know what? I think King Scott deserves a little something-something. So there you go. I'm, I'm really, really, really glad that you're enjoying it. Well, it truly means a lot to me, and I thank you very, very much, Ryan. And I'm glad that we've been able to cross paths and become friends, and it really means a lot to me. So thank you. All right, all right, all right. Let's let's Aww. stop patting each other on the back here. we got an episode to get on with. Guys, let's talk some things coming up. Seven Wonders Edifice is coming out soon. Have you seen this? That I have not. Now, at our meetup, we had some people playing Seven Wonders. We'll talk about the meetup here in a little bit. And they had a whole bunch of expansions out for it. And they were Literally it. all of them. I actually went up and looked at it because I've only played Base 7 Wonders. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what is this? I don't know if it's just me and I'm getting to that uh, get off my lawn age or whatever, but it seemed to like almost lose the magic of 7 Wonders. I don't know. I'm hoping that this is something else that will be magical to that game because that game is really, really great. I really love it. Maybe that's a conversation for another episode. Games that overexpanded. Like they, they have Ooh. so many expansions that, you know what, I just can't handle it anymore. I can think of a couple off the top of my head. Oh, Maybe yes. put a, what do they, put a pin in that? Pin in are we it. putting a pin in it? Okay. It's We're pinned. putting a pin in it right now. It's pinned. So Seven Wonders Edifice is going to be coming out. Also, Andromeda's Edge. This is supposed to be huge. This is like the next step on Dwellings of Eldervale and, Honestly, I haven't looked into it, but I'm chatting with Will. Hungry Gamer Will Brown says this game's going to be the bee's knees. Yeah, even uh, I, I read some things uh, based on the designer's notes uh, saying that this is basically Dwellings of Eldervale, but he expanded on it. He made it better. He fixed any kind of like issues that there was and gave it a space theme. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because Dwellings, I still thought was a, a really, really good game. So I'm trying to figure out what this one does differently. 
that's something that I enjoy whenever designers do that because it's one thing to kind of pigeon your whole your <laughs> pigeon your whole pigeon <laughs> your whole. It's one thing for a designer to pigeonhole themselves into doing fantasy games, but there are people that like science fiction games, and it's nice for them to branch out and do something just a little bit different so they can hit both groups that like their different genres. So uh, this one here, I'm very interested to see how it comes out. Kind of reminds me of like Terra Mystica at a Gaia project. Not only is it a change in setting, but they also have the opportunity to build upon and refine the mechanisms of the game. I know uh, like with Terra Mystica, you hear about how you could get pinned in. You could get cornered basically with with a bad Mm -hmm. setup and Gaia project has ways to mitigate that. Uh, So it sounds like He's refining the game and, you know, just I don't want to say uh, uh, streamlining it because I don't know that. But it sounds like he's going to improve upon uh, what has already been a well-received game. Speaking of well-received games, guys, guess what I picked up today? Dead Hooker. Close. You, beat me, you beat me to the punch there, King. <laughs> Frosthaven. I got Frosthaven today. I don't know why, because I don't know what I'm going to play it. I know I'm not going to be playing it with anyone, so it's going to end up being a solo thing. And I can't solo it and leave it set up, because the cat is back to his knocking pieces off the table ways. So it's sitting on the shelf. I have a broken token insert that came with it. And oh, that wow. takes a lot of time and energy to glue and put together. No, it's not broken token. Folded space. Yeah, Broken Token is the one that they were originally going to do, right? And they had some issues with the owner. Okay, Mm -hmm. so there were some issues with the owner of that, and they said, okay, we're not going to do Broken Token. We're going to do Folded Space. So I had that Folded Space insert. Okay, so I got got this thing home. I got out the dolly and wheeled it into the basement, set it on the table, and I was like, okay, I think I can put together this insert. So I opened the box, and I looked at all these, like, little pieces and the instructions. I was like, all right, I'm not going to do this right now. So I cracked those little, like, taped edges on the Frosthaven box and I slid the top off and it made that beautiful sound that we love. And I looked inside the box and I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this right now. So it's on the shelf and it is now the second biggest box in the board game collection. Now that War Room got sold, it would have been third. War Room sold, by the way, Scott. I, I did move on from War Room. I will not have you oh, sit I, through I that. Oh, I figured. <laughs> I did enjoy it, but uh, man, I'm going to make some money on that thing. I'm going to... Frostpunk. Have you seen the Frostpunk box, the blue box with all the, like, it holds the expansions and the mat and all the crap in that thing? It is absurd. It's not as heavy, I don't think, but it is absurdly big. I do know that when Frostpunk was talked about, a lot of people, like so many people that I saw in all the forums, really, really were looking forward to Frostpunk specifically. However, it's kind of weird because ever since it came out, I haven't really heard much buzz about it. Well, I set it up on the table, and I cracked the rule book, and I did the setup. I did all that crap, and I was like, okay, I'm going to learn this so that I can have Scott and Jason and Jeremy over, and we're going to play, right? And I'm going to sit there, I'm going to play it by myself. I'm going to solo this thing. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll play three characters. I'll solo it, and I'll play three. I'll play four characters if I need to. Each, It's one of those games where each character has their own sheet, front and back, of rules specific to them. That's when it went back in the box. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, I already warned you. You and I are going to have mm-hmm. a day. One of these Sundays was like, okay, come here at 10. We are come hell or high water. We're going to get through this. Adventures, if we don't have a review of Frostpunk up by the end of April, that gives us time, Scott. April. Yes. All okay. right. All right. So th- that's that's the plan. Tommy at the shop would love to play it, I bet. I bet if we got it set up there and, and give me a Thursday off when my wife's uh, not on the road, mm-hmm. I bet we could bang that one out. 
The thing that surprised me with that was whenever I saw the Kickstarter for Frostpunk, I didn't really go into it that much. I looked at it, I looked at the pictures, I saw everything, got a gist of what the game was. I didn't think it was going to be that in-depth. It just seemed like one where you go around, you have ice melting around you as you're going, you're trying to get things done. It seemed like an exciting game, but hearing this and seeing that box, good lord, that box was huge. I'm telling you, there are some games that you put them in your shelf and your shelf is like, is it in yet? (laughs) Nothing. Come on. Tough crowd. Come on, guys. I I didn't want to open my mouth. (laughs) I I was just letting that one go. I say you caught eye of trolls and princesses. Tell us about it. Yeah. So this game, I I, I managed to see uh, through a few Discord channels that I'm a part of. And the designer is actually Norwegian. He is Pim uh, Thunborg. I, I really don't know how to pronounce it. But he is from Norway. And that is where they have the lore of the trolls. And that's where it got started. He designed a game called Trolls and Princesses, and it's it seems really really cool. It's a it's a worker movement game, so you're like moving one troll from one space to another, and then activating that space based on how many f- total trolls are there. And it's really funny too because it says Trolls and Princesses, and you may think you know that all trolls are bad and like they're stealing the princesses and locking them away. And however, uh, according to the lore and what he wanted to show was that trolls are actually nice if you're also nice to them and so in this game you're setting up your own little like cave and you're making up like a room for the princesses just uh princesses you're making a room that is comfortable for a princess so it has like a nice bushy bed with like pink linens and uh, pillowcases and stuff on it and you are actually going to the village and stealing the princess but you're putting her there and she gives you points at the end of the game because you're treating her nicely with like a nice little banquet of stuff the only thing that trolls hate uh, is the sound of church bells so you go to the village and you knock down the church bells and you you bring it back to your cave so that they never get to use them again it all sounds just silly fun but it is a tactical like worker movement euro and fun and i've already backed it so uh, that's that's my take on it already yep do either of you still by chance have a troll doll you remember when we were kids, Scott, I know, Ryan, you and I, when we were kids, they were things. Scott, I know you remember them, those trolls with the big wacky hair that poofed yes, up. Yes, yes. I never had one. You never had a troll? I had a troll. Nope. Nope. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, so all right. Side note. When I was, uh, like, 12, before I was allowed to work, my father worked at a bingo hall underneath the church. Like, the church basement did bingo every Thursday and Sunday. So, we would go and work bingo and sell soda and candy from the kitchen area and take people's orders. Like, oh, I want a hot dog and a Hershey bar, right? That was our deal. Every one of these old farts had a troll doll. Apparently, they were lucky. So, they'd be sitting there with their daubers and their and their little chips playing bingo. Some of these ladies in the front. You know how, like, a, a bingo card is, like, the one grid. But they, t- they get them by the paper. And there's three... Bingo cards on one piece of paper. They would have 10 pieces of paper lined up. They would tape them down at the start of the night. They knew the order of the games that were going to be played. So, like, you'd be like, A, 9. And they would go right down their A column, right down their B column, right down their C column. They were like computers. It was amazing. Evidently, you don't know how to spell bingo. I was about to say, there's no A in bingo. Did I say A? Yes. You did. Ango. We were playing Ango in that basement. In all seriousness, I worked bingo with my dad at the fire hall that he he worked at. Oh, God help you if you were not a regular and you won a bingo. 
Oh. All those other women oh, that yeah. are there every week, they will, it, it's almost like the Jets and the Sharks are going to be standing outside snapping and waiting for you to come out and, like, shiv you in the back in the parking lot. <laughs> Evil <laughs> stairs. <laughs> All right, guys. I got a summer project for us. The three of us are going to go driving around, like, the tri-state area, and we're going to go to bingo nights, and we're going to go in and just sit in a chair because you know that's somebody's chair. Right. Oh, and, God, and just have, just too. have one card, right? Just one card and, and like totally be noobs, be nons and show up and, and take people's seats. Oh, this is going to be, we can record it. This is our new thing. Oh. Screw the podcast. You don't know the juju that these women have. <laughs> Scott, we had a gigantic meetup at the vault this past Sunday and it was fantastic. Yes, I tell you what, our recent record. Can I set the table? Can I can I do the thing? Please, please. Okay, our recent record for most guests was at Ruckus Cafe. We had, I think it was 48 or 49. We don't do an actual tally. We just count the seats and, you know, some people come, some people go, whatever. But it was a big turnout, great food, great coffee. We're like, oh, man, how are we going to one-up that? So we did it at home base here at Greensburg. Uh, the vault's newly renovated, and they have all this space. I think they had seating for 50, and I told them, I was like, guys, we might need one more table, maybe two. We'll see what happens. So they brought in an extra table or two so so they could see it like 55 or somewhere around there. This event went from 2 to 8 and it was 210? 210 maybe? And we were at capacity. Like there were yes. 10 people saying, I was like, holy crap, what am I going to do anymore? This is a disaster. So I left and I went to, we have a Big Lots. Big Lots is like a uh, kind of cheaper department store. It's like Big Lots will have card tables and they'll be reasonably priced. So I grabbed two card tables. So there's little like three by three card tables. Like, oh, these things suck, but it'll do. It'll do. We just need to be able to seat people. Take them up to the register. Two of these tables came to a hundred dollars. It's like, Oh no. Went back into Big Lots because I knew that we needed chairs. Grabbed four chairs. Like, I don't know what chairs cost 20 bucks. Rung them up. They were 120. So it's like, I'm out 220 on tables. This is a disaster. I called my neighbor. My neighbor does a big 4th of July party and I know she got tables and chairs sitting out there. I was like, Babs, I'm in trouble. I need help. I need tables and chairs. You got me. She's like, how many people do you need to seat? I was like, I don't know. She's like, I could seat a hundred. You need to seat a hundred people. I got you. I was like, oh, Babs, I'll be in your driveway in three minutes. So that's what I did when I left there for a minute was I, I went to my neighbor's house, jammed all those in the back of the car, showed up, popped up the tables. And I was like, no one touch these big lots tables. They're staying in the trunk because they're getting returned tomorrow, which I did. I was like, no way. Absolutely not. It was incredible. What, what a, what just a big crowd. There was food going, giveaways. You were playing a good bit. You had some hotness on the table, Scott. Yeah, I got a chance to teach Lacrimosa. So that was a good one there. And then also got the chance to play Heat, which was another good one. It was a lot of fun to do that. I, I wish I had a little more time to wander around and talk with people and everything, but I just didn't mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, there were so many games going on, so many people. It was just such a great feeling, a nice vibe in the room with everyone playing the different games. I wish I would have had a chance. There were some people that actually came down from Indiana, PA, down to Greensburg and play games Ooh. and everything with us. Uh, I wish I had a chance to, to get some other games because they were busy playing party games and stuff. But I wanted to get something else into them and, like, get them into more of the Euro games and stuff like that. Didn't have a chance, but it was all worthwhile. It was a wonderful day. The food was great. The atmosphere was great. Everything worked out beautifully. Yeah, well, wonderful the next day. 
the next time you have a level up meetup, be sure to let me know. I'll, I'll come join you guys. Uh, I'll make my way over here from New Jersey. Well, I thought and you were going to come to PGX. You can do the expo with us, right? Uh, it's September 30th, October 1st. Yeah, but are, aren't you guys going to possibly have another level up meetup? Uh, oh, yeah, prior absolutely. To then? Well, then let we me know. Will- Adventures, we're probably going to do our next one sometime in March. We don't have a date yet. Just uh, keep your ears open. It will be announced in the show when we have a firm date. It's probably going to be closer to Pittsburgh proper, like in the city or closer to than out here in Greensburg. But, Ryan, one thing I must bring up is my travels with work take me all over the state. There are a few dates I'm going to be in Philadelphia. So we might have to try and get together whenever I'm out there and get some games in. Without a doubt, for sure. Yes, sign me up. Guys, before we get on to recent plays, we went long in the banter. Level back episodes require a little bit of extra funding, so we got to kick it to a commercial. We invited an expert team to our laboratory to give us their opinions of Disney's DuckTales video game from Capcom. Yes! Awesome! You have exciting adventures helping Scrooge McDuck escape danger and become the richest duck in the world. Cool. Totally hot. Way radical, man. Excellent. Join the DuckTales gang in Disney's DuckTales for Nintendo by Capcom. Also, look for Mickey Mouse Capade. It's a quacker. Oh, my God, Patrick, you have no idea. I am the biggest DuckTales fan I have Every board game related to DuckTales. I have all the video games. I have figures. Uh, I got to show you my shelf some point in time. But man, that just that just brings back everything. I'm I'm about to play it again uh, on the NES. I will have to fire up my cop. You can just hear like walking around or something. Woo! And it's like, <laughs> boom, you're there. <laughs> oh, all the time. And the uh, the space theme or the moon theme from the game. Uh, that that is running in my head 24 seven. I'm I'm weird. Don't mind me. Continue. (laughs) Oh, we like to take you back on level up. But first, we're going to take you forward. Scott, we did sneak one in here that doesn't really fit the theme. And that is a game coming to Kickstarter called Alinthia. A-L-Y-N-T-H-I-A. If you walk past and you take a look at it, it's almost like Settlers of Catan with dragons. Kinda, sure, sure. Okay, but you so- have the hexes there. You're putting out, but then you have all the different lands. You, you didn't know exactly what to expect, but it was like you had some touches of Catan. You had a couple touches of Pandemic with the dragons, like expanding yeah. all over the place. A very cool design. All right, let's dive in. You look across the ravaged landscape of Olynthia as dragons fly through dark clouds overhead. Your fellow guild members look to you for leadership after fleeing the devastation, and you feel the incredible weight of that responsibility. Your beloved guild is a shadow of its former glory, and despair threatens to overwhelm you. But you are determined and begin to plan your strategy to reclaim your homeland. Uh, okay, so Olynthia is designed by Travis Jones and Andrew C. White. It's going to be on, uh, live on Kickstarter January. January 31st, so like a week and a half ago as you're listening. Let's paint a picture here. To start, you've got a map built out of, Scott, you said hexagonal. They're technically pentagons. They're pentagonal. Mm. Mm, pentagonal tiles, each representing a, a different terrain type, uh, dictating what type of resources you can get from that space. Now, on the board, you can have some spaces that have dragon nests from which dragons can spawn and ravage the lands. In fact, if some of your spawn, players are going to straight up lose the game. Now, the player boards. They're excellent. 
first up, mm. you got a focus tracker. It shows you how much focus you have to allocate towards your actions. Actions cost focus, and that's just the measure of how much you have left. Then you got these outposts at the top of your board. Actual laser-cut wooden pieces kind of look like little castles, and when you move them from your player board, you get some bonuses from the board. Plus, the outposts, they're going to give you resources from the locations that you put them on. So if you put one in a forest, you're going to get wood from that forest. If you put it on, on a mountain, for example, you're going to get brick from that mountain. Conveniently, it shows the various action tiles you can take and the costs associated. So the player board helped facilitate easy gameplay as well. I mean, uh, our heads weren't in the rule book that much. No, 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 definitely not. Now, game changer. The part of this game that, to me, made it worth my attention. The reason I'm looking to back this is the technology board that each player has. All right. Four categories, seven steps in each. And these things, these are things that are going to highly modify or in, in some cases completely shape your strategy. You get better at fighting or gathering or generating renown or be allowed to trade with other play players. This is where I thought they put the most player agency in the game, right? Like everyone's going to be getting resources. Everyone's going to be fighting dragons and making outposts. The tech board is where you could decide how you're going to do it differently. That's the meat of the game. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop here either. I love that you can upgrade your outposts. Scott, we had, now, full disclosure, we had our preview copy of this in summer. Like, uh, we're going back I six so, months? Yes. I think they initially planned on launching like a year ago, then they delayed, and then I emailed them and didn't hear back, and then suddenly it's like, boom, we're back, baby, this is happening. So it's been a while since we actually had the physical copy, but the outposts that you put on the board, you can upgrade them. There's an upgrade action where you can pay resources to give your outpost a special bonus, one that lets you have, uh, say, a higher hand size, another gains renown, another pumps your attack value. It gives an option aside from just making more outposts, right? Now you have to decide between making more or modifying the ones you have. And, Scott, you remember those little upgrades? That they're like little wooden pieces that actually slide yes. on top of the – yeah, it that looks cool on notes the table. I, had here. I loved it. It was just such a simple little thing to upgrade your outpost. But it still made such a great, like, visual representation of an upgrade. Mm -hmm. Remind me of those meeples uh, that, like, Gamelin Games has where you can, like, plug oh, yes. in capes and they, weapons uh, and stuff. Meeples, I think it is. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. Okay, so we got the Anna Outpost. Anna out, out, yeah. You're trying, to, you're trying too hard already. Thank you. There's a deck of market cards that offer three at any given point, which offer the ability to spend various resources for the benefits shown on the card. An easy addition to the game and one that I did not feel was tacked on. That sort of thing like, oh, we're just going to throw in a market of cards over here. No, it worked in this. It felt like it belonged. Mm. So you play for five rounds, needing to kill dragons each round. And at the end of five, the high score wins. Last thing I want to point out is that fighting a dragon nest is basically rolling a d6 and then another one, which only goes from one to three, for the dragons. And needing the difference to be positive. That's how many you get to kill from the nest. Uh, of course, there are ways to modify rolls. And as the game progresses through five rounds, the strength of the dragons has got a little slider. So, like, their strength and the nest mm -hmm. strength increases. All in all... I had a lot of fun with this one, especially the technology board. What do you think, Scott? Whenever you look at games, there are a few things that people can really do to make a game fresh and brand new. Like, you've never seen this mechanic before. Mm -hmm. This game doesn't take it for granted that we have to go out and make a new mechanic. It's looked at mechanics at work and put it in this. So right, you can right. sit down with someone and say, have you played Catan? Sure, yeah. Yes, well, I have. These here are going to be like that, so that's what you're going to do there. Okay. Have you played Pandemic? Yes. Well, that's the way the dragons are going to work out. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, have you played uh, Beyond the Sun with the tech trees? Yeah. Well, that's how this part's going to work. You ready to play? I thought okay. the player board kind of reminded me of Scythe. Little Shades of Scythe, what with getting uh, an upgrade whenever you remove well things too, from yes. it. They used what's worked well in the past to make theirs work well and let people jump in and quickly mm-hmm. get into that world that they're creating. You don't have to recreate the wheel every time you make a game. Sure, granted, it's nice to have a new mechanic out there, but sometimes you got to rest your laurels on what's worked well in the past, put your own touch on it, and allow people to jump in and play the game quickly and enjoy the time that they have with your game. What you're saying is they took elements of like Catan and Pandemic and put them together and added another mechanic to create this game? Is that basically what you're saying? Maybe think of it like Catan, what with the you're going to be pulling resources from the tiles that you're on. Right. Think of it like Scythe in that you are upgrading your player board. Think of it like Pandemic from the Dragon's Nests and how they're going to. The no, it's it's not. You're not flipping cards. Other lands. Right, right. Yeah, they they will expand. They they do so in a different way than the Pandemic card system. But shades of that, like okay, here's an impending and rising danger. I guess for lack of it, it's a certainly different technology tree or technology unlocks mm-hmm. than you would find in something like Beyond the Sun. It, it's much more minimal. You get a technology, you just take one of the little technology tokens and you place it. Okay, I have this one now. You have to go in order. So there's four different rows, seven techs on each of them. If I want the fourth one in that row, well, I better get the first one first. So it, it's a very simple tech tree, easy to digest, easy to understand. But man, it does change your play. It seems like a lot of you know, easy mechanics from simple games. However, I'm putting them together. I feel like that could add a lot of complexity to it. And would you say it's like a lot more complex than some simple games or is it a longer game or? It's not really a more complex game. It's just one of those things where they take the mechanics and put them together to create a new experience for people. They've taken mechanics that people are used to, put them together to make this new world, this new game experience for them to enjoy. Your half hour, 45 minute teach period is shrunk measurably because you can just go in and say, have you played this, this, this? Yes, this is very similar to this. You'll see how it works out here as we go through a couple turns. I'm gonna give the short answer. I think it's firmly mid-weight. Okay, yeah, yeah. We should point out also, there is a, a co-op mode, there is a, uh, a competitive mode, there is a solo mode. There are multiple ways to play this, so it's going to cater to any type of gamer. Or, you know, If you're a solo fan, you'll be able to play this one. If you don't like attacking each other, it does have the cooperative mode as well. Mm-hmm. And it does, I, I really like the artwork on the tiles. It really is very sharp looking. Okay, I mean, I- I'm sold on it. I definitely want to look into it more. Did you guys back it? Well, Ryan, this is going to go live in two days. So at the time of recording, it's not up yet. I think I am going to be a backer. Listen, we get a, we get a handful. I was going to say a lot. We get a handful of review games in from time to time. Some that aren't out yet. And usually whenever it's for an upcoming game, especially one that's like, well, I can't get the usual suspects and the big wigs that I have to pay for. I know I'll send it to the smaller guys like level up that'll review my game and talk about it for free. That means we get a wide variety of enjoyable versus not this one was good this one was a lot of good uh, i was i was really happy whenever i cracked the rules I was like, oh i can't wait to teach this one to scott scott i I don't tell you this but sometimes i'll crack one of those games and be like oh god <laughs> 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 oh 
boy, what are we going to do with this? And, and we don't talk about every game that, that we receive on the show for that reason that we're talking about. It means it made an impression. This is one it's definitely going to be, I'm going to click on Remind Me. So it's one that I want to take a look at, see where the budget is and things like that, and see what I can do with uh, as far as backing that. All right, guys, that's enough for stuff on the horizon. Things coming up. This is level back. Let's level back. Let's start getting retro, talking about some old games. Ryan, we just rambled forever. Why don't you tell us about an older game that you've been playing? Well, I had a choice of two games, and I'm only going to talk about one of them because I don't want to spoil the other one. I'll use that for, if anything, like a level back for a future episode. How about that? Uh, okay, okay. But in this particular one, I'm going to choose Archipelago. Um, people may or may not know Archipelago. It's by a designer named Christopher Belinger. In this game, you are colonists. So, you know, the theme maybe a bit retrograded now <laughs> we were, we're trying to step away or i don't know about step away but like learn from uh things like this and try to advance just sure. like mombasa did with uh sky mines hey which is another one that went to the space theme this one you're trying to build a colony and there are already indigenous people there and you hire them to work for you to build up this colony you're trying to keep them happy while you are having them farm for you or gather materials from around this entire archipelago. And mm -hmm. you are using those to try to build up buildings. You're trying to start a market. You're trying to do a trade routes back to the mainland. All this time, you're trying to keep the population from rebelling by keeping them as happy as possible. And this entire time, everyone has their own secret objective card. You're trying to complete this objective, and whoever completes their objective after a certain amount of time or as soon as it happens, sometimes they just flip it up and say, hey, I completed my objective. I win the game. So this is definitely a player-controlled kind of game. It has another unique system as well where you can purchase cards from this market. Mm -hmm. When you purchase a card, though, they are square-shaped cards, and each side has a value on it. When it comes to the phase where you get these cards from the market to do things, like, for example, it could be something like uh, hire uh, more people than anything or steal something from another person. When mm -hmm. you buy it, you buy it for the price that's showing on the bottom of the card at the time in the market. But at the same time, you're also rotating a card so that it either gets cheaper, more expensive. And so you just keep on going around doing this and going turn after turn. And uh, whoever, uh, for the most part, completes their objective wins. And I happened to play a game where I was about to complete my objective. However, near the very end, someone had the, I forgot the name of the card, but it was like the trader card. There is a trader card and they basically want the civilization to rebel in the last turn because they had enough stuff to do. So they forced a rebellion and that normally would end the game for everyone. Once a rebellion happens, okay. the game is over. However, <laughs> if somebody has that traitorous card, they win the game. And so they did on the same round that I would have won, which is, ah, it was kind of a, 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 a teeth clencher when that happened. I was oh, so, so mad. But, um, I, I do suggest giving Archipelago a shot. It's enough of a unique game where okay. I think you will be enthralled when you play it. And, uh, we definitely did want to play again, but you know, time. Next time we, we get together, I, I might bring Archipelago, even though we already have a list of like 10 to 15 games <laughs> to <laughs> no play kidding. with each other. So, so, but that's my, uh, my level back. Uh, I think the game came out in 2000, I want to say 18. So I'm just, seeing 12. Is Archipelago? It? I'm seeing 2012. Ah, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. I'm thinking. And my speaking of time, game. I'm seeing 30 minutes to four hours. How long would you say on average, say a four player game? 
Oh, well, okay. So uh, that's another thing, too. You can set how long the game is. So there are objectives in the game, and if you want a long game, you can choose the long game objectives. Okay. We played a short game to start with. That game lasted an hour and 15 minutes or so, and that was with three people. An hour and a half to two and a half hours, and a long game is two hours on up, depending on what happens. So, Ooh. yeah, that's a, mostly a player control, but at the same time, you get to choose the time that you want the game to be somewhat. All right, so we're in a day and age where we've got beyond the sun we've got all these expansions for tapestry we now got the nesting box a new expansion for wingspan and we're talking archipelago They're 11 years old now does it hold up you you're saying oh yeah i want to play with you guys next time it holds up it would you know if if i was brand new to gaming this would feel like something now maybe not feel like something that came out today but like this this still wows you today Oh, I mean, yes, it does. Uh, as I was saying, everything about this game seems like an original design. Mm. Like, there's no real game that I can compare this to to give you an idea of how it works, really. It is a hidden role game, yes, and it is a colonization game. But everything it does in that way is quite unique. It's quite good. All right. My game here was released. I broke the rules a little bit in 2021. Wait, wait, hold on one second here. No, I'm sorry. It was in 2012. Yeah, that's it was released in 20. Hold on a second. Is your dyslexia (laughs) kicking in, Scott? Uh, It was released in 1996. That's when it was. This is a game. He's talking Pokemon. Uh, no, this is a game, Netrunner. It was released by uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast. Uh, no, I'm sorry, no. By Fantasy Flight Game. No, no. Um, Project <laughs> Nisei. Yes, Project Nisei. No, uh, um, um, Null Signal Games. That's it. Yes, 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 yes. It was designed by some hack named Richard Garfield. Barely but, even uh, know the guy. Yeah. <laughs> but Netrunner, <laughs> Cyberpunk, yes. Everyone's heard of this. I truly don't think anything has come close to bringing this idea to life than Netrunner. The game is totally asymmetric in the way that embodies what the genre really is. It's a two-player game, no teams, no one versus many, just runner versus corporation. Each side plays completely different than the other. It's not like we're in Magic, you're both setting up the same way of putting up your beasts and casting spells and everything. No, you are completely different on either side. The corporation side is doing their best to make money. Mm-hmm. How does it do it? They have agendas that they're trying to put out to help the population. Yes, I'm using air quotes. They are aware that runners are coming after them to reveal their plans. So they put this information in remote, remote servers protected by ice or programs that can stop or even kill the runners. Now, the runners are coming after the corporation so that they can show the population that they are doing some shady stuff. They have to buy equipment, sometimes even augment themselves, in order to get into the corporation's servers and release the information. Now, the game is played until one side is revealed seven points worth of agendas. The agendas are the the big things that the corporation is trying to fund to get out there to make society better, where the runners are trying to steal it from them and say, no, you're not. The corporations can hide the agendas in their servers and fund them with money in order to get them out. 
but they could be playing a bait-and-switch move where they're actually hiding a program to injure the runner, but making it look like an agenda. The runner makes a run on the server and knows how much ice is set up in front of them. You can see two pieces of ice, three pieces of ice, but they don't always know what type of ice it will be. Will the corporation spend money in order to res the program so that the runner knows what it is? Will they give a false sense of security to the runner and let them through? You never know what's going to happen. This game is great. I always had gotten the game, but never got a chance to really play it. Null Signal Games picked this game up after Fantasy Flight. I don't know if they lost the rights to it or what happened there. They picked it up, and they're running with it and making new cards. The cards look amazing. And if you're interested in the game, check out their website, and they have a system gateway pack, which is a great way to get into this game. I just played with Tom at SCG this past Thursday. He was mm-hmm. the runner. I was a corporation. We're playing it out. He's just running through every piece of ice I have. It was not pretty. He's running through this. He's running through that. I'm funding this agenda. I'm funding this agenda. I'm By God, I'm going to get this agenda out. He runs on it, gets through the ice. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, this is going to do a lot of damage to you and clear out your hand so you're dead. So I actually won by him thinking that I was trying to fund an agenda, but it, it wasn't so. It is such an amazing game. I, I don't know of any game that really has embraced the idea of two completely different ways of playing the same game against each other. So that's Netrunner. I, it really, I cannot talk more about this game. It sounds like you can, but you're no, just not yeah, going to. I, I could, but I, I'm, I'm going to limit myself. So speaking of Netrunner um, I, and Nisei, as you're saying, uh, I forgot. I, I think it, the company now is called Nisei. Is that what it is? There actually really... were that, but they're now Null Signal Games. That's right, Null mm-hmm. Signal. So a friend of mine is also helping to run this campaign for this oh. for this update of Netrunner. He got to demo the game for me and had a pretty good time with it. It was a little hard to wrap my head around, but like as I was playing it, I was getting it and he destroyed me, of course. And, but I was interested in, I was definitely interested in playing again and like trying to get more and more info on how to actually play the game and just get better. It's one of those games where like the more you play it, the more you're getting these strategies down and the more you're like being able mm-hmm. to like construct a better deck for yourself, just like magic as they did. But, yeah, if you do get some like starter decks or like you get one of your constructed decks, uh, decks all set oh, up, yes. uh, I'll play with you. Yeah, the great thing with this is that they also have different corporations you can play as. So each one plays a little bit differently. And also the same thing with the runners. The runners have different ideologies that they back, that they want to bring the corporations out for everyone to see. So there could be anarchists, there could be criminals, uh, all sorts of different things here. So there's a whole different feeling for each way that you play this game. And the artwork is stunning, grabs that whole cyberpunk look to it. That really speaks to me. I really love this game. I, I truly do. I feel like I got to chime in with something here. So here's what I got, right? Anytime okay. anybody brings up Richard Garfield, be it on a, a podcast or anything, it's always the joke like, oh, you know, some scrub. Like, yeah, we all know Richard Garfield's the man, right? He's he's the king of the designers. You know, I'm looking. He did. He did Netrunner. Of course, he did Magic the Gathering. And then, like, King of Tokyo is popular. Bunny yep. Kingdom is good. He had Robo Rally in there. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't much care for Robo Rally. I don't dislike it. Same with King of Tokyo. It's like, okay, it's cute, but meh. Uh, and then, well, oh, like, I, I guess Mindbug is supposed to be good, but <laughs> I, I'm not trying to like be an edgelord or anything, but like the hunger we were kind of so so on. We were like, okay, it wants to be clank, but it's not as good. And I know that's what watering it down. I didn't care for Dungeons, Dice, and Danger. I think I'm not a Richard Garfield fan. Aside, of course, from Magic the Gathering, which I love, I don't think I much like his designs. When people mention them, they're like, oh yeah, some designer no one's ever heard of. I'm gonna be like, well, yeah, because there are many that I like more. So there. Ah! Controversy. Mm. Well, speaking of Magic the Gathering and things that are nice to say, I want to talk a little bit about a game called Star Realms. This is a game from 2014 mm. Wise Wizard Games. The Magic the Gathering tie-in is Darwin Castle, one of the two designers. He and Robert Doherty uh, were the design credits for this game. Darwin Castle is an old Magic the Gathering Pro Tour regular. I think he's in the, uh, the Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame now. That and he's big, big in Magic. Star Realms. This is about as evergreen a title as you can find. Evergreen being a game that a company can keep coming back to. Release new additions, put out expansions. Basically, it's a game that when a company needs a little jolt of income, it's game that they can turn to because it's got a big fan base. And for Wise Wizard Games, uh, this is certainly just that. Star Realms is a two-player deck-building game. It takes about 20 minutes to play, and frankly, it's pretty easy to learn, too. Thematically, the cards are ships from a number of factions, and each player is battling for supremacy in whatever space system you find yourselves in. At the start of play, each player gets a 10-card deck, and it's simply eight cards that give you trade, which is the currency in the game, and two cards that simply deal one damage. On a turn, you just play out your hand. Add up the damage symbols, see how much damage you do, and add up the trade symbols, see how much money you have to spend. And what you spend uh, goes towards cards that are in a shared market row between the players, consisting of five cards that are actually drawn from a really big deck. And when you buy a card, a new card is added to the row in its place. The card you buy goes to your discard. End of turn, draw back up to five. When your deck runs out, you shuffle your discard to make a new deck. That's that's deck building, right? Simple, simple, simple. If you've played Dominion, you probably already know how to play Star Realms. You just don't know it. Wanted to highlight it for this level back, though, because I just got that new deluxe version of the game. All the cards in it are foil. It comes with a few expansions. The box has that magnetic strip, right, that folds down and goes click, whatever you close it. Oh, doesn't that feel good? You so love even that magnetic opening strip. And close- oh, dude, that's like my favorite thing. Even opening and closing the box feels deluxe. And, of course, with getting deluxe Star Realms comes playing it a ton. Let me tell you what, guys. That simple tug-of-war deck building with a shared market, they crushed it. The cards you can get from the market, all right, they come from four different colors, and they represent factions, right? Red cards, uh, we'll just go by the color names. Red cards tend to give you uh, uh, the ability to call things from your deck. Get rid of them, right? Those starter cards that kind of suck after a while. Green cards tend to do big damage on the cheap. Yellow cards tend to let you draw more cards or force your opponent to discard. And blue tends to give you uh, some of your health back, extra defenses, that sort of thing. Easy enough. Uh, I want to I hone my deck to do big damage. Uh, I'll try and snag red and green cards. All right. But the cards you acquire, they got something special that adds a bit to this game. See, I might have a simple yellow card that I played. It offers one trade, so one purchasing power, basically. Plus, it lets me draw a card. Now, on the bottom portion of that card, it's got the yellow faction symbol and a bonus ability. We'll say, uh, make your opponent discard a card. What does that mean? That means that if I have another yellow card that I played this turn, the same faction, right? I get to trigger the bonus portion of each of those yellow cards. 
This is going to make the balancing act in the game particularly exciting. So normally, you're looking for value propositions when you're buying from your card row. What card does the most for the best price? If two cards each cost three trade, one does one damage, and the other one does four, it's an easy choice. But the bad card that only deals one damage, it might have a synergy bonus at the bottom that is much, much better making it potentially a more powerful card depending on the makeup of your deck to that point. Oh, yeah, I love it. You keep drawing five cards and taking turns uh, dealing damage to each other. If your opponent gets uh, to down to zero, you start at 50. I, I said hit points. I think it's influence in Star Realms. If you get them to zero, you win. I'm sure you guys have both played Star Realms. I have played Star Realms. Um, oh. I've played it more than enough where I can say I don't need Star Realms, especially when they have uh, a game out called Shards of Infinity, which is a combination of Star Realms and Ascension. We're leveling uh, back. Star yes, Realms. I know. I think Shards of Infinity is pretty old, too. Damn. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, I, I played it a lot back then. I was a huge fan. I was usually the red-green kind of guy that you were talking about, just doing oh, yeah? damage as fast as possible. That's my experience with Star Realms. Scott, you played it? Yeah, I played it actually a lot on my phone. So I played the online version of it. It was a great time. Yeah, you had the whole idea of the synergy that you had with what type of fleet did you want to build. Mm -hmm. um, now, I do have one of the starter decks, but mm -hmm. I've never really broken that out to play it or anything. At PAX, I picked up, because it, it always kind of like called to me a little bit. I yeah. picked up Hero Realms, expecting something a little bit different. But hey, this is another one of those cross-genre crossing ones here, where basically it's very similar. I mean, yes, you are going up against big bosses and things like that, but the same thing, where you're getting an idea of what you want to play, and you have the power, and you have the resources to buy other things to put in your deck. It is an evergreen type of game. If you want to sit down and play a quick game, you don't have a lot of time to do it, it's one that will fit into that little uh, cubby there, and you'll be able to play it, enjoy it, and have a good time playing it. So, yeah, Star Realms, definitely an evergreen, a good level back there. Guys, let's take a break here. It's that time. I need to refill the coffee. And I need to refill the scotch. This summer, coming to a supermarket near you, there's going to be a great new high C flavor with an outrageous food taste. And what are we going to call it? Ecto Cooler. <laughs> High C Ecto Cooler. Slimer's new fruit drink. You've been warned. Guys, there's this dude on YouTube who calls himself the LA Beast. LA like Los Angeles. He's the LA Beast. And I guess he's a competitive eater. And like his, his shtick isn't like I can eat a lot, which he can, but his shtick is I'll eat anything. I'll like he'll consume whatever. Like I think he ate a cactus. It was probably 2017. He did a video drinking crystal clear Pepsi from 1992 or what he was like. This expired 18 years ago. Let's see how it. Uh, he has a video where he, somebody, one of his fans bought him an Ecto one cooler. He showed that he got an Ecto one cooler. He's a huge Ghostbusters fan. And High C came out with Ecto one. High C. Well, everybody, you just heard the commercial, right? I remember having it as a kid. It's got this nice lime green color, a nice tangy, uh, like way too much sugar flavor to it. 
And he, he gets one because the 2016 Ghostbusters movie came out and he's like, this is what a, uh, an Ecto one cooler looks like today. You know, he, he pours it in the glass. It's lime green, takes a sniff. He's like, Oh, it's just, it smells like I remember when I had it as a kid and downs it. Then he's like, now this Ecto one cooler, this one's from 1993. <laughs> he pours it into the glass. It is brown. I'm telling you, it is brown. He's, he takes a little whiff and does that like head jerk back. He's like, Oh. Wow, that's like uh, chemicals or paint thinner. There's something funky oh. going on here. There's some things floating in it. <laughs> he drinks it. He drinks, but he got one for himself for his Ghostbusters collection. He's like, yeah, it's four hundred dollars, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. So he opened an invite to if anybody on you know that's watching buys me one, you know, and sends it to me. Yeah, I'll drink it. And he did. <laughs> L.A. Beast. I am looking this up right now. That is. <laughs> That that is wild. Now, I mean, I know definitely about the high C ecto cooler because I did have it as a kid too. But not mm-hmm. only that, uh, a, a good friend of mine who uh, runs a YouTube channel uh, or co-hosts a YouTube channel called the Tabletop Express. He is the head of the or president, should I say, of the New York City Ghostbusters. So he actually does charity work for the New York City Ghostbusters and the Ghostbusters Foundation. Uh, Oh, that's cool. He actually has an Ecto-1. And so like he drives that around to parties dressed up in full gear, in full actual like, uh, you know, the the pack, the proton pack. Uh And and, uh uh, I I had the pleasure of uh, helping him out this past uh, New York Comic Con just to be able to make some slime with them. And they're an amazing group of people. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there. um, a friend of mine, his name is Ryan. But check it out on the Tabletop Express because he does board games as well. And I just want to say it, the New York City Ghostbusters are uh, an amazing charity. And I'm just going to throw that out there. Shout outs. Well, in, off the mic here, we were talking a little bit under the commercial there. We were discussing scotches and peat. So if anybody wants to purchase a bottle of uh, Log of Woolen for <laughs> King Scott to get used to the peatiness of scotch, <laughs> I, I will drink it on air. So well, yeah, on air. So so you'll hear silence as Scott imbibes. They'll hear like that. <sighs> oh no, you're going to hear so much coughing. <laughs> that smokiness. Oh, is gonna go. you will hear words. <laughs> All right, all right. Let's get back to board games. One more before we get to the review. Ryan, I want to talk a little bit of Heroes of Air, Land, and Sea. Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. That's what I said. You said Air, Land, and Sea. So Air, Land, and Sea is another game, by the way. Heroes of Air, Land, Air, and Sea. Land, Air, Sea, yeah. I just got to remember Holos. Okay, one more go. Uh, Heroes of... (laughs) You lost it. (laughs) Let it roll off your tongue there, Patrick. Heroes of Air Land. Land. No, Land. Land. This is from Gameland Games, designed by Scott Alms in 2018, and this is a 4X game. Ryan, you being the pro, let's define 4X. Tell me the Xs. What do we got? Oh, the good thing is they're written on the box of Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. The first one is Explore. Don't cheat. I'm not cheating. What are you talking about? Nobody I can you see were that. At the box. Nobody can see that I'm looking at the box. So tell, stop telling them that. <laughs> anyway, so the first E is explore. <laughs> uh, I am looking at the box. So explore. You're going to take your troops and you're going to march around the board and find things. Uh, there's going to be tokens all over the map, and you are going to move your troops onto those places. And at the end of your turn, you are going to flip over those tokens. If the map is ever cleared of all the tokens, that ends the game. So we the got map- explore. 
The second way is to expand. In this game, you can build towers, and you have three towers that you can build. If you build three towers on three different islands, of which there are either four or six, depending on how many players you have, then you end the game there by having all three of your towers out on different islands. Mm -hmm. The third way is exploit. Uh, Exploit is... Damn it! <laughs> I'm totally trying Exploit to remember. Exploit is when you when you uh, uh, you're you're harvesting from all the lands. You get to uh, pull resources. No, no, no. Uh, that that's explore. Explore is the tokens that are on the map. By the way, exploit is when you tax. You tax your people, and you get uh, more. You get your ore and your mana and your food. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the third way is to exploit. Now, to exploit is to have all eight of your like pawns, your peons, your 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 harvesters out on the board, as well as all of your warriors, of which I think there are four or six. And as soon as you get all of those troops out on the map, then you end the game that way. And the last one is exterminate. Exterminate. It's very simple. Everyone starts the game with a giant base. And as soon as someone destroys someone else's base city, which is very difficult, by the way, then that ends the game as well. And those are the four ways to end the game. So we got 4X, Explore, Exterminate, Exploit, and Expand. And that's how they implement them here in Heroes of Air, Land, and Sea. Ryan, this is a big, big game. We're going way back to Gen... Not Gen Con. Yeah, it was Gen Con that we played this one, wasn't it? That's right. It was. I put you, uh, I put you to work to get this happening. <laughs> You know, you, you pulled through for the team. I mean, I'm telling you, if you have a brand new copy of this game, you don't want to bring it out as brand new to a new meet or anything like that, because there is so much punching out of stuff to do so much. Not only the fact that it have like millions of miniatures in it, but there's punch outs where you have to craft together these little cardboard pieces into a flying vessel or a ship. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that for each faction that you have. Now I have the deluxe all in painted everything, blah, blah, blah. That means that there were 12, no, is it 12? Uh, it's either 12 or 10 factions that I had to punch out things for. And that is that is two different kinds of ships for each of these factions, not to mention the other tokens for uh, other things like towers. I had to build their towers. I had to build their base city, which is all made of cardboard, <laughs> by the way. And so it literally took me, I want to say, about 15 to 20 minutes each faction to do this. And so like when you were like, hey, let's play Heroes of Land, Air, uh, Land, Air, and Sea, I was like, all right, how many people? Six. Okay. I really want to know what factions you guys are playing, so I only have to punch those out. But we didn't know what anyone else wanted to play, so I was like, well, I guess I'm punching them all out now. All right. So you suggested that I bring, I was like, hey man, we got this in. This game looks awesome. You know, it's right up my alley. And I get, you know, spoiler, I loved it. I thought this game was phenomenal, but you said you'd teach it. And I wasn't going to let that pass. So we're all packing up and getting ready to go to Gen Con. And they're like, what the heck do you have in this heavy bag? I was like, oh, that's, that's heroes of air lamp. That's heroes. I got heroes in that bag. Uh, I brought it because you were going to teach it. And I had all the cool things going, you know, all the expansions in that box. You set up, we got the big neoprene mat going on the board, but nothing was punched. And you were so kind to, I, th- I think we were finishing up a game of some sort. I don't even remember what we were playing, but you were like, yeah, I'll punch it out. I, I don't mind doing the teach. You were like, you took that under your wing and you took us all and like, we entered the Church of Ryan that day. You set it up, you executed it. It was wonderful. I got to tell you what, this game isn't that 
tough to understand either. On your turn, you're basically taking an action, either a capital action or a command action, and then you pass it on to the next player. The capital actions, I love that they have that, like, I'm going to take the action, everybody else gets to follow. I thought that was, it kept the game moving. Twilight Imperium does that, where when somebody does an action, everybody else has an option to do uh, sort of the minor or pay to do a similar thing. I like when a big game that has the potential to go long does something to fill the time. No, I, I totally agree. It does make everyone more attuned to the game and like focus on everything that's happening because it's like, oh, I want to do that too. I'm totally getting that. They spend one of their actions to do so, which gives them less actions in the following rounds. But at the same time, like you got to do the same action at the right time that you wanted to just because someone else did it. That whole momentum is really like makes this game just book like through and through. Like the rounds really weren't that long. They really no, weren't. No, we had six people with the teach. We were under three hours, I think. Yeah, I think that's about where we were. And we also had that break in between. So what makes the game special? What makes it good? I, I'll go first here. To me, I think it's having factions that are asymmetric. Not crazy asymmetric, but everybody's got their own faction board that uh, that has unique upgrades, things that are unique to you. Uh, you can draw spells that are now unique to you. You have things that you're able to do that other people aren't able to do. There was even a point where I was like, oh my goodness, I could just spam this spell. But they have counters. That There was a counter spell, right? That I, I can played get rid of. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Because, oh, you're you welcome. know, what? I felt like... I'm sitting pretty here. I got this, uh, this, this spell that I can just spam for the game. Little did I know that there are ways that other people can mitigate someone from running away with a spell. I like that. I like all the marching of the troops, the flying airboats. There's just so much going on, and yet it's all manageable, including the time frame. Yeah, and the actions that you do are very, very simple, as you were saying. Like, one of the actions is move. So yeah. you move. <laughs> move. One, one, one of the actions is tax. So you, you choose what thing that you want. And you get that number of them and that's it. You know, just all sorts of simple little things that you have to do. But yeah, you're, you're definitely right. The asymmetry of every faction is, I think, what makes this game. So you ended up with the lion folk. I know that we had six factions in that box that were all punched out so we could go with six people and we just sort of dealt them at rent. Like everybody picking is like, yeah, I'll just go last. I'll take whatever's left over. Humans, humans. You got this game with all these cool races. I got humans. Thanks guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone even was the lizard folk. Oh, they had some fun with that. All in all, phenomenal game. I can't wait to get it back to the table. The only catch for me is that whenever Gamelin sent us a copy, it was a, a used copy. Things were opened up. He's, you know, I can go ahead and send it to you. The only catch is it's missing the board. I got to send you the neoprene mat. Is that okay? And I was like, oh, that's so awesome. I get the neoprene. Yeah, right. No, Scott, Scott's going, oh, wow. Here's the catch with the neoprene mat. You gots to play with six people. Yeah, I can't yeah. play with five or four, et cetera. No, I'm thinking I might be able to like block off a side of that mat to do four. But uh yeah, no, that's that's why I haven't had it back out since. I can't wait. Okay. Now you guys have been gushing over this here. I gotta ask you, now then I am the resident tiny epic fan with gameling games. I've got mm -hmm. pretty much all of them that have come out. How does this compare to those? I know that those fit an epic game into a small package. Now, does this being so big and so many players that can play it, does it overstay its welcome or is it like, do they add things in it to make it bigger that it doesn't need to be? First of all, it doesn't fit in the Tiny Epic line. I mean, I, Tiny Epic, let's start here. The Tiny Epic games, I feel like a lot of them are just regular size games, but they make it a point to fit it into a tiny box. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You break it out of that box and you start building a map using cards that are in the box. Before you know it, like some of those actually take up the same amount of space as mm-hmm. is like a, a medium sized board game. They didn't try to condense at all here. I feel like this is one that okay. like Scott Alms was just waiting to be able to. Oh, it doesn't fit my line, but I really want to make this. Oh, I can't make it into a tiny epic game. Screw it. I'm just making it. This thing is a table hog. Now I know oh, I got the, the neoprene yeah. map, but that thing is. That's gotta be like two and a half by four feet. Like it's, it's massive. And then everybody's got their own player board. Everybody's got a tray of miniatures. Everybody's got a sideboard with an airship and a, and a boat. You get a boat, you can get a boat in the water and plop your guys on it and start carting around. Oh my goodness. It's, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. I will say, uh, you know, like Ryan and I mentioned our play with six players, it was under three hours with a teach. With a teach and some people asking questions and clarifications. Well, no, we still got it done because essentially once any one person meets one of the four end game goals, that's it. Game over. They won. Done. And I will say the map being so big, it gets condensed very quickly. I was almost disappointed when I started to realize that like nowhere on the map is safe. It is at first. But mid game and on, literally anywhere on the board becomes really easy to reach. And I got to backpedal a second. I, I, once one of those four X's are met, that triggers end game. They don't win. That just that triggers triggers the end of the game. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm eager to give this thing a try here. I, I've looked at it, and it does seem daunting because it is so massive from mm-hmm. what I've seen there. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm definitely down to give it a try. You're a Scott Holmes fan. I bet you like it. Oh, God, Carl, why? Ah, that's right. That's what you (laughs) named him. Guys, it's time for the top 100 falling stars. These games went down. Maracaibo down two spots to number 50. Battlestar Galactica down two spots to 94. Top 100 debuts. We've said this one before. Decrypto. It keeps going in and out. And then then, then it's in. And then it's out. New highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. Too many bones. Number 36. Great Western Trail. Second edition has cracked the top 50, sitting at number 47. Beyond the Sun, number 89. And would you look at that? Obsession, number 92. Happy birthdays. Twilight Imperium, fourth edition. Five years in the top 100. Through the ages, a new story of... You know, it just coincidentally, if somebody asked me, what are my favorite two games? That, uh-huh. that's them. And that's the order. Twilight Imperium and Through the Ages. Uh, uh-huh. new story. How about that? Through the Ages, new story of civilization, seven years. Star Wars Imperial Assault, eight years. Mage Knight, 11 years. And Twilight Struggle, 17. Wow. Feels like just yesterday we were doing this and we said Twilight Struggle, 15. I know. An American synth pop band from Los Angeles, California, best known for the songs Obsession, Let Him Go, I Engineer, and Room to Move, and Emotion was formed in 1983 from the remnants of a retro science fiction. No, 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 no. Ryan, would you do the walkthrough, please? Designed by the wonderful Dan Halligan and published by Kayenta Games. Obsession is a wonderful player card and tile management game in which you are the head of a family that is trying to become more reputable by hosting activities and inviting already established persons to them, all in an effort to court the most prestigious family of Victorian England, the Fairchilds. 
In the middle of the playing area is a double-sided round tracker board. You can either play on the normal game side, which is 12 rounds of play, or an extended game side with 16 rounds. There's also the market board, which has the river of room tiles, the guest cards, and the servants for hire. Players also begin with their own boards that come equipped with five room tiles, one of each of the five types, which are color-coordinated with each other. You also begin with one of each of the three basic servants, a blue butler, and a red head housekeeper. Lastly, each player sets their reputation track to level 1 and step 1. After setup, players will choose a family to play as, and then take the cards and the player board associated with that family. Each family has some sort of asymmetric starting condition, such as the Yorks, who start you with a handful of cash, or the Ponsonbees, who give you an early boost of reputation. By the way, the Ponsonbees have a family member that looks kind of like Eddie Redmayne, and funny enough, his name is Edward on the card. Either way, once you've collected your asymmetric items, you're ready to begin. So the first thing you do on your turn is called rotating your service. It's almost like your service people who are on break are now ready to work, and the ones who were just used in the previous round are sent to take a break. You then have a choice of two actions for your turn. Host an event, or pass. So when you host an event, you'll choose one of the room tiles you have and host the event written on it. But you have to make sure of two things. The first is that you meet the requirements to host the event in the first place, such as having a specific service person and or playing a specific number of guest cards of certain types. Also note that there are many cards that require specific service people to accompany them as well, like old Colonel Dalrymple, a war veteran who requires a valet with him at all times, probably to hear his old war stories while they play croquet on the lawn. The second thing to take into consideration is you need to have an equal or higher reputation level than everything you use this round, including the room tile and the guest cards. If you meet all these requirements, then you gain all of the favors of all of the cards and all of the events on the room tile itself. This could range from getting money, adding new guest cards to your hand, or gaining reputation. By the way, reputation is tracked with a tiny rondelle near the top of your player board. Every time you gain reputation, you move this marker clockwise around the rondelle track, and each time you make a loop and jump from the fifth step back to the first step, you increase your reputation level by one. Congratulations, you are now more famous than you were before. Either way, when your turn is finished, put all the cards you played into a discard pile near your board, put all service people used into the expended service section of your player board, and return that room tile back where you got it from. Now, if the return tile has anything other than a rose icon showing, you'll flip it. And on the other side is a variation of the event that was on the first side. Plus, it'll usually have a higher point value on it because you did the activity for the first time. It's almost like the guests you invite don't want to come back over to the same event over and over. They much prefer the variety. So instead of all that, you can also pass on your turn so that you can refresh all of your service people back to available, get all played cards from your discard pile and put them back in your hand, and then you can either gain 200 bucks or refresh all of the buildings in the builder's market. Once you've done either of those two things, you can then buy a room tile from the Builder's Market and slot it under your board so that you can host that event in a future turn. So how do you court the Fairchild family? Well, at the beginning of every set of rounds, a card is revealed showing a room type. Gossip is going around that these are the type of events favored by the Fairchilds, and so you'll want to try to fulfill their desires to hang out with you by hosting these types of events. After every three or four rounds, depending on if you went for a normal game or an extended game, there is a courtship round where you will count up all of the victory points showing on each of your rooms of that type. Whoever has the most points during that courtship will win the favor of one of the Fairchilds, and they will join you for your next set of rounds by going into your hand. You will also get a victory point card that you can either hold until the end of the game for the points shown, or you can play it at any time to get the benefit of what's shown on it as well. After the final courtship, in which you add up the victory points of all types that the Fairchilds favored throughout the entire game, there's final scoring, and the winner of Obsession is determined. Well 
done. Oh yes, lovely day we're having today, Mr. Hugging Bottom. Oh, quite right, quite quite right. How are you, Professor Plum? Oh, I'm just dandy having this tea, and I've brought my companion Archibald Wigglytoes. It's so wonderful to make your acquaintance, Mr. Hugging Bottom. I've heard so much about you. Huh. Oh, the pleasure is mine. You know what this party can use? <laughs> we could use a little bit of music. Oh, well, that being the case, uh, Farnsworth, please turn on the music. Straight away, sir. Gentlemen, it's that time, the 8-Bit Breakdown of today's review game obsession. We're going to look at eight facets of this game, beginning with the art and components, finishing it all up as we always do with Was It Fun? And Who's It For? Art and Components, Mr. Hug- Hugging Bottom, was it? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <coughs> all right, that's uh, enough, uh, that's so, enough. So, so, so. <laughs> anyway, uh, as far as the art and components are concerned, there is a lot of white, but... I think that that amount of white in this game really makes everything else pop. Now, I mean, we're talking like 1800s Britain, right? It wasn't exactly a diverse community. You are cutting that out. <laughs> okay, so so the color palette, it's, there's a lot of white. Yeah, there's a lot of white in the cards, but I do feel that... Because all of this game is, is for the most part, white and black with a little bit of beige as far as the cards is concerned, that the color is not there. But I do think that that lack of color really makes everything else kind of pop. Um, okay. The other kind of places that there are, are colors are in like the player boards, which has a lot of brown and beige. And then mm-hmm. the actual like uh, the round track board is purple. But other than that, like as far as the color is concerned not really there but the art is and it i think they did a really good job i don't i can't even tell if they're like photos or if they're just like drawings of photos or i think like they're that. actual portraits i think they did like old-timey folks oh uh, but and- wait i have the information on that oh of let's hear it scott take the floor i agree with you everything is very basic but I love the ground boards. I mean, you have the picture of the manor in the background, and it, it really mm-hmm. does kind of set the mood for this. Everything else is rather basic. You have the little square tiles for the different parties you're going to be putting on, the different add-ons you're going to be putting onto the manor. The photos on the cards, those are actual photos of people from that time. They're actually photos in the public domain. So they took oh. those photos and made up information about them and used them. So those are actual people. Because I was thinking it was something where they took their friends and put them in there and aged them up. Those are actual photos that are in the public domain that they put out there. And I got to tell you, um, Elizabeth Fairchild's kind of a hottie there. She's got to go so, on. Yeah, it'd be really, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be really funny if the the actual person from the free range photo that they used was actually something like I don't know a farm girl who just went to the prom and that's what she looked like during yeah. the prom. Who knows? You never know. So these are real people, Scott. Your last name is Walton. Uh, I've got English blood, right? Like I can trace lineage to England. Theoretically, like are these people? That they like, are they actually British people or are they just random, random white folks that they're like, okay, yeah, that, that'll do? Like, they could, they're not necessarily British. 
from what I understand, they are British people. I couldn't get any information on whether or not their names are the same, but they were just photos that they had. Oh, I'm so sure they I changed the names. That they probably changed the names to protect the innocent. We are going to find those images in the public domain, and we're going to trace who they actually are, and we're going to find out if any of us are related. Like, that could be my great-grandma. One of, oh my well, God. my great, 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 great grandma. I, we're not going to do any of that. You know what, guys? Uh, aside from the laser cut wooden meeples for some of the servants that you have in the game, there's basically nothing here that's going to be deluxe, right? It, it is a very basic production. I like it. Uh, you can get the, uh, the metal coins. Uh, Ryan, you had metal coins in yours. Did they come with obsession? Were they an add on for obsession or did you like shark them from another game? Those actually come from another game. The closest game, I'll go ahead and uh, spill it right now, but the closest game that has money of, uh, you know, euros or whatever uh, coinage that they used, that came from a game called Nanty Narking, uh, the deluxe edition oh, yeah. of that. Okay. Uh, as far as the art goes, uh, uh, with the old timey folks, the, the old pictures, the photographs on there, I like that. And you know what? Honestly, like one of the things I put in my notes here is I can't help but feel like most publishers would go with like, cartoon drawings like think endless winter right. think the hunger right i think they took a little bit of a risk here and i think it paid off in the flavor of the game the theme and the emergence let's get to bit number two for what's basically a card playing euro this is tier one i think on theme and specifically on immersion you can't help but notice that some of the mechanisms some of the abilities on the cards directly tie in with the theme of your house gaining prestige or whatever you're doing let me give you an example the starting card that each player has, uh, the starting daughter card. She draws a card when you play her. She'll invite a guest, big deal. But she'll also give you two prestige if she's allocated to a tile with a prestige male guest, right? Like, it's the talk of the town when Victoria's, like, out. Uh, she's she's at AMC with Sir Billings Hollingsworth Worthington. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, whoo, we got some prestige going. Another fine example, uh, the mother card. You get to draw a new get, uh, two new guests, and you dismiss one, uh, basically getting rid of it. And there's reason to do so. Some guests are worth negative points at the end of the game. You don't want them. Another thing that you can do when you play the mother is just discard one of your cards. You dismiss them, right? She comes busting yeah, through the yeah. door. She goes, Mm-mm, "Get out my house." <laughs> I love that. That's so flavorful. Everything is tied together so well. You've got the flavor text found on basically every card. And you cannot help but play this game and start to talk old pop. It's about going to the tennis court. <laughs> we do it every game. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the theme and immersion, okay, I fully got immersed in this game. <laughs> Strange as it may seem. Huge Downton Abbey fan right here. Yeah, huge. This just opens the door for a game I never knew I needed or wanted. And then there it was. And once again, Ryan, thank you. Awesome. But whenever we played this at Origins, you had the screen-printed meeples. Oh, dear God. If you're not looking at those things, and I'm looking at like, oh, my God, it's Bates. Oh, my God, it's Thomas. Thomas is a, well, I won't say that here since we're a family show. It was just so much fun doing that. I got so into this game and, like, running the show of this game in my mind. It was absolutely wonderful. And with a rating of theme of 22 out of every game on BGG, it totally does that well. How in the heck are you narrowing that down? I've never done that before. You're, you're rating by theme? 
What's you, what's the most thematic game? What's ranked number one? Gloomhaven. It's Twilight Imperium. Nah, it's probably Gloomhaven, to be quite honest. It's Twilight Imperium. I'll look it up. <laughs> okay. While you're doing that, Scott, why don't we talk complexity? Do you find this to be a complex game? It's not really that complex of a game as it is complex in the decisions you have to make. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll touch on that more later on, but... It's a lot of things here where you have to look at what is more important to you. Getting money to upgrade your manor, if you want to get more prestigious uh, guests to your events, that's where the complexity comes into it. It's not a difficult game to wrap your head around. It's just figuring out what you want to happen at your manor. Yeah, what yeah. there's technically, uh, there's only two primary things in a turn. Yeah, you're right. When you think about it, uh, you were teaching it to Jason. You said, all right, Jason, look, you can host an event and you allocate the meeples and cards from your hand and then you can buy a new tile from the row. That's mm-hmm. it. And it was like, yeah. oh, well, you know, when he watered it down like that, he's absolutely right. It has that 3.1 weight rating on BGA and I think that comes from like, like you said, the moving parts surrounding those two primary things. You, you got to work to figure out like, okay, I can allocate this meeple and these cards to this tile this turn, but you kind of have to have a plan in place for what does that leave me with next turn? What's my plan for next turn? That's where it starts to get a little bit complex. Yeah, I agree. Especially when not only do you have to think about like, how do I get enough money to build a building, but you have to consider the buildings that are out there because the Fairchilds want a specific building Mm -hmm. in that next courtship. So you have to figure that out. But at the same time, you have to leave yourself enough room to try to get the buildings or the money or the kind of gentry that you need specifically for your objectives as well. There's a lot of things to to keep in mind while you're trying to build up your reputation in this game. Putting all those together makes the game more complex than it is. I think it's I think it's more complex, as you said, uh, based on what you try to figure out what to do than it is the actual process of running the game. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it sounds like we're starting to dabble into the meat of the game, but before we get there, let's talk rulebook and learning curve. Ryan, I think you're the rulebook guy here. I, Scott, you have clearly looked through yours because you knew the thing about mm-hmm. the portraits. I have never looked at the rulebook to this game. So this one's on you guys. I'll go ahead and shoot at this one. The rule book, uh, there have been enough people reaching out to Dan, who is very active on the forums, by the way. Oh, he yes, loves this, very he, much he, so. He loves this game so much, and he loves the community. I, I, I think he's a wonderful guy. And there has been a lot of questions on how to set up the game, how to separate the tiles, because there's a lot of extra content to take care of. And there's a lot of variations on this game where you like remove certain tiles or you change something because of the references in the rule book. It's a little difficult to figure that out. So I think the rule book does not do the best kind of job when it comes to the setup of the game with the variants and things like that, if you ever do that. Mm-hmm. Even without the variants, the setup is a little wonky. However, okay. as soon as you get past that threshold, the game is, and uh, sorry, the rule book specifically, is really good at driving you home. It specifically goes through uh, a, a lot of the different tiles. There's like a reference or a glossary of some of the tiles. Mm-hmm. And so if you have any questions yeah. about it, you can look at that. But everything in the game is not difficult. It's it's kind of self-explanatory, but the rulebook still goes over it anyway. It just goes through the process of a turn. And again, that is that is not the difficult part of the game. So I think the rulebook, aside from the setup and like what to take out and what to add in and what to change, aside from that, the rulebook made it quite easy to learn this game. Getting this out, opening the box, playing the game, 
it hits everything. You have everything there. If you have a question, you can open it up. There's bold letters. This is the part you're looking for. Boom. There's the answer. But yeah, it gets into whenever you start doing the different versions of the game and adding things in and doing different setups and everything. That's when it gets a little bit, a little hairy at times. But for just the basic game, it sets up very well. And I do agree with you. Uh, I was looking at some of the forums for the game, and yet Dan is all over the place there, looking at things, answering things quickly for people. He's really into it. I looked at a video for, <laughs> okay, my OCD got the better of me. Whenever I looked at all the stuff that came with the game, and I'm trying to figure it out, he has a video showing you how to pack everything up, where everything fits in perfectly, you can tell by the way he's talking about it. He loves this game as well, too. So it's it's really a great thing there. Yeah. So we are talking about a game that came out in 2018, by the way. And literally just now while you were talking, Scott, uh, I looked at the forums on BoardGameGeek for this game. And mm-hmm. I looked at the latest forum entry, which was, it looks like, 16 hours ago as uh, at the time of this <laughs> recording, was the last forum question asked in here. Within an hour... Dan answered the question and he oh, like, references. He did screenshots of the rule book as to what, like where the rules are. He has like five screenshots in this answer. And he's just, he's just so active there. So like you can always find an answer. If you are, if you're questioning something and you can't find it in the rule book and you can't figure it out from a rules video, go on the forums on board game geek yeah. first search to see if someone already asked it, if they didn't ask it. And by the time you wake up the next morning, I'm sure it'll be answered. If not by Dan, then by all the people who love this game uh, as much as we do. Well, let's talk learning curve. I got to say, guys, I think you're in for a learning game here, no doubt. And then after that, game two, you're good to go. Uh, I think if you have the chance, though, once you're done with that learning game, give the rule book one more read. <laughs> There's a bit of minor rules and timing that takes a little while to fully grasp in order to play well. And I think not doing so, not checking that rule book when you're done with the first play, even if somebody else taught it to you, give it a look because otherwise you're going to be doing a disservice to yourself. Like I said, I never saw the rule book and I was on like my fourth or fifth play. And I was still like, Ryan, you and I are playing async. And I'm like, Wait, how did you do that? How how did you afford that? And you're like, well, I traded because of the minor action that I could take on my turn. And it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I never like double check the rules to cement it in my brain. That said, the actual functioning within the game, uh, you're gonna have a learning game. If you're playing with anyone that knows what they're doing, you ain't gonna win the first time you play, and that's all right. Know that going in, you'll be able to refine your strategy as you play game two, three, and on. I'm sorry, there's something in my ceiling right now, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> can, we, can we add that to this? this I, yeah, I can hear it, too. I heard some crackling. I have no idea what the hell is going on. You got a squirrel. I think I may. It's my kin. They are at your house. Wait, do we have any, uh, uh, do we have any cryptids in Pennsylvania? Are there any Pennsylvania local cryptids? Oh, Bigfoot around here. <laughs> Yeah, we have the we have the Jersey Devil. We got the Allegheny Whitefish. Okay, <laughs> it's that sounds like it's a, a cuisine. Con- it's a condom floating down the river. <laughs> it's an Allegheny Whitefish. <laughs> oh, there goes the cat. That's yeah, what it cat. was. He's gonna go get the squirrel. Oh, oh you can't is. time this. All right, so we get into the meat of the game and. 
I look at it much like chess. I feel you have a couple of opening moves you need to do in order to be in the running for winning. You go with the private study, so you get reputation and money on the town fair days, or you hire more serving staff. Those are two big things here. Now, each one you can do within the first time before you get to the uh, the fair that first day. village fair, yeah. But you have to wait a turn in between, so you have to figure out which one are you going to go for. So it's such a tricky thing there that will line up your game, how your game is going to go whenever you play. So that, I think, is one of the main things you have to take into consideration whenever you play this game. Some timing, yeah, especially the openings. Yes. For me, this one was tough. Like, I know, obviously, there is big reason to play for the Fairchild cards, uh, the two cards that you get at the courtship phases. Uh, I have won games where I didn't get them, and uh, Ryan and I were playing yesterday, and I lost the game where I got them three times, right? So I, I still think you want to shoot for them if you can, and I still think that you have an edge if you get them. Um, but I've tried games where, like, I've done all sorts of things. Uh, try early on, take away the meeples specific to the men and the, uh, the, the servants, the blue and green servants for the, the, what are they? The purple and green for the men and the women cards. Um, kind of like a denial strategy. I've tried big money and just take green tiles and try to buy up what's expensive. You can shoot for gaining tons of prestige from guests, drawing prestige guests and stacking up points from those cards you can go heavy and play as many casual like i'm gonna play cards that will draw me more casual guests and draw as many more as i possibly can so that i won't have to pass as often i had a game where i passed just once the entire game point is on the surface the main strategy here is try to get those fair child cards build out your estate and there's lots of points to be had in acquiring those expansion tiles but I think the meat of the game is managing doing that while paying really close attention to your objectives, timing the market, timing when you're going to pass, timing the builder's holiday. And sheesh, did I just say sheesh? <laughs> There's a ton of meat on the bones here. And frankly, it's really enjoyable to manage tons of different strategies you can pursue. You really don't know how much you have to manage until you actually like play a game or two. Like your first yeah. game, your first game, of course, is the learning game. So like you're, you're, you're probably not going to do well, but I'm, I'm not going to give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Like they could, they could destroy the, the teacher in, the, in that game. But if you're really good at figuring out, okay, once I play this building, I'm going to lose this worker for a turn, this worker mm -hmm. for a turn. And I'm going to have to use up these two cards, which is going to leave me with, let's say, one family member. It's a male, two other females, and one of those females needs two different kinds of servants to go with her. And, you know, you, you have to think about that because you have to kind of strategically plan ahead and realize if I do this, I'm not going to have a turn next turn because I'm not going right. to have anything that I need or the cards that I need or the servants that I need. And so I'm going to have to pass. Or I could try to squeeze out the use of two turns if I do it a different way. It's a, a little less uh, less advantageous at that time, but you'll be able to get two turns, and so you'll be ahead of the curve by the time you pass for the next round. It's all the timing and planning. That's, that's I think, mm -hmm. the, the, the meat of this game is, is yes, it's, it's, it's a mix of between what both of you said. It's definitely the timing and what you do and what you use with what you have. Scott, do you flip that study every game? Uh, actually, before we recorded, I did not do that this time. That's usually one of the things I usually do in order to get that extra $300 each time that you Twice. Uh, yeah, hit the fair. 
So that's a big thing there that helps out. And it's a nice little thing that you can have just running in the background. And then you can focus on other things then. I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to tell you guys exactly what my strategy is for the first round. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it all depends on one thing. And that depends on if the Fairchilds want the Fairchild the brown, card. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Depending on if the Fairchild wants the brown buildings or not. If they don't, then yes, I'm flipping that study. And that's going to be my second turn. My first turn is going to be to get money from the green tile. My second turn mm-hmm. is going to be flipping the private study. My third, because that uses the blue meeple. My third turn is going to be build reputation. And then my fourth turn, since I have my blue servant back, is to get more servants. And then I usually okay. either pass or depending on what the buildings gave me and the money gave me, I would probably do the red tile at that time. But those are strictly, for the most part, the, my first four turns, almost in every game. Unless yep. the, the Fairchilds want the brown building. Brown. In which case, you need to hold on to those three points, no yeah. doubt. Because uh, most of the browns, especially early in the game, are not worth three points. Three is a lot to start with. It's usually zero, and then it requires a lot of gentry in order to flip mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, let's talk replayability and variability of obsession. For me, I think it might actually be easier to describe what stays the same from game to game. Uh, that being, you're going to need money. You're going to need prestige. You'll want to draw more cards. The special turns, like the Builder's Holiday, the Village Fairs, they stay the same, in the same spots. Uh, you have the same five buildings to start with, that study that we were talking about, uh, the, the one that gives you the money, etc. But after that, it's a buffet of variables. Uh, and while having tons of variables doesn't always equate with replayable, in this case, it certainly does. Dude, Ryan, when we were, when we were playing just asynchronously while, while we were both working, we did this three times in a day. Because just as soon as one game's finished, I want to see what I can do with the variables given in the next game. Oh, what, what's, what's going to be in the market next game? What cards am I going to draw to start next? Oh, is this one going to make me go big money? Maybe this is the time that I don't flip the study because the Fairchilds want a brown. Off the charts replayable to me. I want to play it again right now. We're playing uh, well, tomorrow while while we're working, buddy. Well, well, now if you just took a look at Scott, he definitely has that FOMO face right now. Are you okay, Scott? Yeah. Oh, Scott. No, it's not like that. I, I know that it's asynchronous, and you tend to like to play live. I can play asynchronous. Okay, tomorrow, 9 to 3, uh, I will be at work, and I'm a bank teller, which means the only people that come in are people that opened their account in 1984. So I think uh, maybe the three of us are going to have a little little throwdown at Alderly. Okay. Replayability variability. What you think, Scott? Oh, hell yeah. I'm planning to play this again. I've been playing the hell out of it on uh, BGA with people other than you guys, evidently. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things, like you said there, the order in which the improvements come out, that's variable. What family mm. are you going to take whenever you begin? Oh, that's, that's a huge a one. What order are you going to upgrade your property? Who are you going to invite to the parties? It creates a whole story in your mind. And I don't need to talk about that, well, that uh, well-to-do slut that brings in a lot of money but lowers <laughs> your reputation. Uh, she always shows up in my parties and everything. I don't have to get rid of her. I just but, think uh, of Mr. Deeds. <laughs> She's like, oh, I know who you are. My name is... I know who you are. Wham Bam Dawson, a.k.a. Little Miss Slut Slut. But you look at those those cards that come out, and each one tells a story. It's so much fun. Because it's just like they have a little blurb as to what they're like and everything. And, yeah, you know that well to do slut. I mean, yeah, everyone knows her. But that's what makes it so much fun. It All the variables that go into this thing... 
yeah, I'm definitely playing this game over and over and over. The replayability in this case, I feel like, is because of the variability, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, there are games where variables are sprinkled in, and they're cheap. They're, you know, like, you draw one of the objective cards, and one objective card says get the most blue cubes. So, okay, let's try another game. Let's see what it does. Get the most red cubes. Mm. Well, let's draw a new one for the next. Get the most yellow cubes. And it's like, oh, come on now. You know, that, that's not variable. That's just change it. That's moving the goalposts so, so slightly. This one's got them, and they change it, and I love it. We have a lot to like about this game. Obviously, everyone's been saying nothing but positive things so far. Is there any downsides to this game? Well, Scott, I'm going to let you start this one. I Because I, cause I okay. think if, if you do have downsides, it's not going to be a long segment at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it, it's probably one of my biggest downsides is it's not exciting to look at. It doesn't have a great presence on the table. It's just a bunch of tiles square tiles with words that's it but that takes me back to my early days of playing euro games and what drew me into it they never really looked exciting so if someone doesn't know about the game and they walk past and see someone playing it it's gonna hurt from its table presence yeah yeah. that's probably my biggest thing i could say there well all you got to do as far as that's concerned is get like a hundred dollars two hundred dollars worth of upgrades like i did and uh, there you go all set well, I just got the game, so I mean, I got some time here. We played a game where I took the family that offered grandma, right? The Asquiths, uh, they had the their, their grandma with them. What? The Dowager. Whatever. She's grand. She's Mima. Mima lives in the house, right? I took that family, and uh, Ryan, you took the one that gets to start with the green tennis court tile. All right. Yes. Simple enough. Turn one. Game begins, and uh, uh, everything starts flipping up, and the card that flipped up for the Fairchild card is green. All right. I can't help but feel from the get-go that I was not going to win that Fairchild card at the courtship. And let me tell you, I did not win that Fairchild card at the first courtship. Now, that doesn't necessarily spell doom, but I do feel like that shifts the odds to something like 60-40, particularly in a two-player game. It's not necessarily a downside, just something to be aware of. And in that case, in, in that game, it felt like... Well, dude, can we just mulligan and start? Like, why couldn't it have been blue? Why couldn't it have been anything different so that we could actually have a fair competition on it from the start? There were other games where I'd win that first Fairchild because I have a bunch of blue tiles. And then the next goal card flips, and again it's blue. Dude, I already have the lead in blue. Maybe the other players abandoned it entirely, and they went for other tile types, hoping that, like, well, this is what I can afford. Or maybe they were thinking, I'm going to take my chances on the next target card being a different color so that I have a lead on it, right? Either way, it flipped up my color, so I get the first two intervals. I got the fair child, and then I got it again. That means I'm getting a crap load of prestige. It means I can send the daughter with Mr. Fairchild to double down on that prestige. It just opens up an avenue for me to gain a very, very large advantage from the get-go and not at the fault of anybody. Again, not insurmountable. It's just, and, and it is quite rare that it can happen, but it can happen. Sometimes you're due to draw casual guests from the top of the deck. All right. And one game, you might draw three that are excellent. Whereas the next game, you get to draw three. You get one good one and two of them that are negative points with mediocre abilities. There's a way to get rid of them with the mother. Sure. But that means that you're not using the mother for her other abilities. So while you do have a way to mitigate it, it still sucks. Okay. Side note here. I hate when folks review a game and they point out something that that's bad, that's okay because you can mitigate it by spending resources or something, right? 
you still have the resources, right? You're just, you're, 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 you're mitigating it. Sure. But you're just trading one bad thing for another. Uh, if I needed a five and I could trade resources to turn my two into a five on the die roll, you know, what would have been better is just rolling the five, right? So it's not like, Oh, it takes the luck away because you can mitigate. No, it still is a factor. Uh, in the case of obsession, now I have to use the mother card to dismiss one of those guests, whereas I'd really like to draw the user to draw two and keep one, but I can't. So I'm effectively missing out on the good action of the card to do maintenance. Aside from that, <laughs> and, and, and guys, the reason why, why I'm making a point of this is because I love this game and there aren't many downsides. You know, if somebody said, where would you put this scale one to 10? And we don't do that, but I'd be like, oh, dude, it is a 9.5. I'm not crapping on the game. I'm just emphasizing it to downplay the fact that I love this game so much. Yeah, I, I don't want it to sound like, oh, it's flawless. Those are things that to me stuck out as like, yeah, this could really uh, put a damper on someone's playthrough. So right? what I hear is that if things don't work out the way that Patrick wants when we first starts, <laughs> he's going to ask for a mulligan. No, I even pointed out the blue scenario with the blue tiles that I got to double dip, and that wasn't fair. <laughs> and the, the funny thing about that game is I think I won that game regardless. Of oh, shush. No, I think not that one. No, I think that is the one where you got like three of the Fairchilds, but I still got it. You definitely beat me in a game where I had three Fairchilds to your one. I think you had it last, but I had the first three instances. Uh, to that me, was, that first instance is so important because it's going to bump you up three rep. And if you send the daughter with uh, with the, the male Fairchild, you're getting five rep. And, and if you do it on the tennis court, it's plus 200 bucks. That is just so much for a turn five action in this game that you can do and the other person can. Maybe that's less influential in a three or four player game, but in a two player game where everything that I gain is, is effectively a loss for you. Whew, it's tough. It's tough to overcome that. Yeah. As much as I adore this game, this is like one of my top 10 favorite games. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that right now, but there is a downside that can be changed out. So this is one of those alterations or changes in the game that you can do. All right. That's the fact that there are some, just a very few amount, I think only like two cards and one building or two buildings where you do something detrimental to your opponent. Like okay? take that. Like, yeah, th there's an unnecessary take that element to the game in some of the tiles and some of the gentry. There is a gentry card that uh, it even says attack on it. So you attack and so you target one of your opponents and you make them lose a reputation. You also lose a reputation, oh, yeah. but you, you make them lose one. One of the starter tiles, after you get servants, what happens is it flips over to the other side and it says either get two servants or take one from another person. I don't like that you can do that. Granted, you might have to at some point in time because uh, someone might take all of the purples and the greens in a game just to try I, it I like it for that. Yeah. So in that game, because I put it on friendly mode, we didn't have those buildings or those kind of gentries. And the first three actions that you did were taking all of the purple and all of the green uh, <laughs> servants. And so I, I did not have any. I had to wait until like right before the third courtship and I got the tile that changed my footman into valets as well. But there was nothing I could do. And in that situation, I could see that tile being fine. However, like I hate the whole... Like if you flip it over, you steal a, a servant from somebody or there is a building, a blue building. I think it is where every turn you can spend a servant to just steal a the reputation from one. someone else. Yeah. I feel like it's a forced thing in the game. That's solely unnecessary. 
considering how many different kinds of buildings there are or rooms, how many different kinds of gentry cars there are, so many different things. However, they had to add a couple tiles and a couple gentry cars that specifically attack your opponent. They give what they think is a thematic reason, but like in this kind of a game, I feel like it's not necessary. Thematically, it makes sense, but it does feel out of place in this kind of game. I will say I like those. I like them in the game, but they do feel out of place. Like the game does not suffer from removing them from it. I mean, that being said, I mean, even though there are these detriments that we each have with the game, I I still find it incredibly fun, which, if I'm not mistaken, that's our next segment. Is that right? That's bit number eight. Was it fun? Mm -hmm. And who's it for? Why don't you keep going? All right. Yeah, I definitely think it is a fun experience because there's so much, so much change in every single game. There's because there are so many things you have to think about. There are so many different strategies or ways to get there that you have to figure out. And like, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it is very fun to try to figure this kind of puzzle out. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's more of a puzzle mm-hmm. to me in my mind. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's, it's very strategic and I'm, I'm huge into those. So it's like, what do I do? How do I keep this going? How do I make it so that I win the hand of the fair child or go on a date with them this round and stop my opponents from doing so? I'm going to take what they need. Aha, them. But then I, I can't even flip it. So I don't even get positive points. And uh, so they're going to win it anyway. You know, just it's so fun to try to come up with a solution to the problem that you have in front of you. And mm-hmm. I definitely feel like this game is for people who like the aesthetic of feeling like everything that they do means something. In every single turn, you're doing something that benefits you in some kind of a way. Whether it benefits you better than the other players, that's up to, you know, how the game plays out. But I feel like this is for one of those people who like to feel like they're doing something in a game. How about you, Pat, this time? Dude, Obsession's a great game. Uh, When we're going to review a game, we'll play several times leading up to recording. In this game, Obsession might be the game that I've played the most leading up to talking about it. Uh, I found that it's really fun to manage the variables that are thrown at you and pivot accordingly. It's not a one-trick pony. There's a great deal of branches on the strategic tree here, and you've got plenty of decisions to make every turn. Uh, that said, do note this is a game where you uh, you can play yourself into a corner for a turn or two, so you have to pay close attention to which servants you're using each turn, what you intend on doing next turn to make sure you can be able to do it. I found it particularly enjoyable to see my abilities increase. Like, you know, you're going to be able to do things mid and late game that felt impossible early on, and it's remarkably satisfying. Also, I just got to throw out there, it's a game that you can prove at. I could tell that, like, I tried a whole bunch of wonky, like, just wackadoo strategies seeing what could work, but in doing that, I was finding that, like, I was familiarizing myself with the game. I felt like I was getting better at it. Barrage did that for me, too. Some of these Euro games, you start to feel like, okay, I understand how I how I connected the dots to make this happen, and that happened here. Who's it for? You're not going to have a stand-up moment. Um, you're not going to be negotiating, backstabbing. There's no grandiose space battles or shipboarding parties. This is a Euro through and through. So if you just got turned off, then yeah, this probably isn't for you. But don't let the theme scare you. I'll throw that out there. When I picture having the gang over for game day, I don't envision us all like sipping tea and, well, I think Lady Margaret shall enjoy a romp in the French garden with Earl Duke, James Earl Jones, Swilling Bean, Erebor. <laughs> That will demonstrate prestige for the ask with a state. Uh, okay. If you research this game on BGG, scroll to the bottom of any given game page. It shows you this section of fans of this game also like, and it gives you a, an idea of some of the other things that like people rated highly. So if you rated this game highly, here's other things that other people rated highly as well. 
times a thousand users or whoever and compile it. In this case, we got a list that includes Beyond the Sun, A Feast for Odin, Ark Nova, Gaia Project, Great Western Trail. That should give you an idea of what kind of game you're getting into. A heads down thinker. If that's your jam, if that's the kind of game you like, you are going to love Obsession. Archibald Wigglytoes, what do you got? Yes, we've had a lot of words here spewed out about this game, so I'll wrap it up very simply. Was it fun? Yes. Who's it for? This is for someone who likes a work replacement game with a lot of choices. And uh, Downton Abbey fans. Yeah, Bates forever, man. Bates forever. (laughs) I was sure you were going to go, was it fun? Yes. Who's it for? Yes. Me. Me. I thought you were going to say yes to you. <laughs> That would have been great. All right. Now we like to take a look back and see what we played a year ago and what we talked about. And a year ago, we talked about Moonrakers. And Moonrakers is a game of shipbuilding, temporary alliances, and shrewd negotiations set in a spacefaring future. The players form a loose band of mercenaries, but while they are united in name, actual alliances are shaky as players are pitted against each other in the quest to become the new leader of the Moonrakers. Oh, this one was a fun one. I'm liking looking back at this one. Scott, Moonrakers is its a negotiation game where we're all trying to get to 10. You got upgrades to your ship. You're you are taking on crew. It's got a little bit of deck building going on, but most importantly, you're tackling missions, and oftentimes that means you need to get help from other people to accomplish them, and that's where the shenanigans enter. Yeah, that was the biggest thing with this game. Whenever you're doing it, you need to negotiate and figure, you know what? If you help me out here, I'll give you uh, a third of what I make on this. How's that sound? How's that sound? Well, it could be the person that you talk to is like, no, but someone else is over there. Going, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do, do it. it. I'll do it. Yeah. And they'll help you out. So it's, yes, there's a lot, lot of negotiation going on in this. Normally, I'm not a big one for negotiating, but. I had a good time with this. I, I liked the look of it. The theme was fun. It kind of felt like Firefly in a way. And it was just a good time. I enjoyed playing it. Yeah, everybody gets to kind of take on the Han Solo character. And there's something fun about that negotiation that you're doing. Because like, well, like you said, you know, you start going around the table, taking offers and whatnot. They did a great job of combining a deck building kind of mechanics game with negotiation and above the table talk and backstabbing that you know it's 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 so often that a game does one or the other well oh it's a negotiation game which means you're barely playing anything on the table or oh it's a heavy euro game which means you're all heads down and silent this did a pretty good job of meshing the two and it plays in a pretty good time frame you can get a group together it's easy to learn and get a game pounded out in geez an hour hour and a half at the most yeah, it doesn't really overstay its welcome. It could easily go a little bit longer, and it would lose the flavor of the game and the fun of the game. Right. And I think a lot of people would check out. So it, it does hit the sweet spot with how long it is. Now, take it with a grain of salt, because when we reviewed Moonrakers, it was generously provided by IV Studios. One year later, are we recommending Moonrakers? Well, I think I would go back and I would play this game but I'm not sure if it would have a place in my library. 
But that's basically because negotiating games really aren't my jam, but I mean, I'll play them with people, but it's not one that I really actively seek out. And when it left your library, it promptly went into mine because I'm the backstabby negotiate type and it's right <laughs> up my alley. Love this game. Uh, dirty secret is I've actually sold it too, but I kept it within the group. Jimmy's got it now. So I feel mm. like, you know what? One of the guys that I played it with that loves it has a copy. So anytime I want to play it, I can be like, Hey, Jimmy, why don't you bring over Moonraker? So <laughs> I, I look at it that way. It's still accessible. Uh, it's one that if I didn't have it, well, if Jimmy didn't have a copy, I wouldn't mind having a cup for myself. I really enjoyed Moonrakers. Listeners, adventurers, I have returned from a quest from lands of yore. A quest given to me by one just Patrick. A quest where I should find, deep in the board game vaults, a game that would fit in the Level Back episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. I have been tasked with this, and I do not take it lightly. And I am proud to report, just Patrick, I have fulfilled just such a request. Listeners, welcome to today's episode of Lost Loot, where we look at any and all board games ranked below 1,000 on Board Game Geek. And I do have an interesting level back for you today. So, today's level back comes in at a rank of 4,157 on Board Game Geek. And that is Armadora. Which is also a game called Nuggets, which is also being re-implemented in 2022 as Perladora. The Board Game Geek page, when you type in Armadora, pops up as the game Nuggets. And when you type in Nuggets, it pops up as the game Armadora. It is odd. Nuggets came out in 2003. Armadora came out in 2013. And now Perladora, which has recently been released, which I have not played, has come out in 2022. So this game has like a 10-year life before they renew it again. But I didn't even know that Perlador was coming out, and I've had Armador for the past, you know, little bit now. So I'm just going to go with it that it's Lost Loot. It's been a long time since this game has been reproduced, and they're not even the same games anymore. But let's get into what this game is about. So, in Armador, you are playing as one of four factions. Elves, orcs, goblins, or mages. All trying to vie for the massive hordes of gold that the dwarves of Armador have left around the map. In the game, you set up these tile squares that have different plots of gold on it. On those plots of gold, you place down different cubes that represent massive amounts of wealth that you are trying to collect. In the game, you choose one of these four factions, and they have some slight asymmetric abilities to it. And you, on your turn, you're doing one of two things. Either you are placing a warrior of a various strength on one of the squares, or you are placing a palisade to try to make fences of these different areas. You go back and forth until there's no more palisades or no more characters, and then you see where these different palisades have made different areas. So say like you make a section of the palisades that's cut off from everything else, that is considered a territory. You flip over the different characters there, and whoever has the most strength based on what characters they put down there wins that area and takes all the gold in those spaces. You do that with all the different sections, and whoever has the most gold in the game wins. Very simple. So, Armadora has been around for a while. The game that it comes from, called Nuggets, it's not. there's not too much difference, to be honest. You're still placing down these fences and trying to collect these different areas of gold, and whoever has the most gold at the end of the game wins. What Armadora adds are asymmetric abilities based on the factions. 
all these different things that made the game a little more playable. Really, what makes this game good? What am I, why am I talking about it today? This is a game I don't think anyone's even talked about for probably 10, maybe even 20 years that you missed Armadora coming out. You, you just know about Nuggets. It's been a long, long time. Well, this is very reminiscent of a game that lots of people love called Stratego. It is kind of an area control Stratego game where these different little chits you have of your warriors, your army, have numbers on the back that represents their strength. And as you place them down in different areas, it's going to give those different areas a strength that's going to make your army a little bit stronger than the opponent's. And it becomes a really interesting little puzzle. As you place these warriors down, you also want to take into account how many palisades you can place down to make sure that the area you're trying to get that warrior to pretty much guard, for lack of a better term, into it. Because the other player can place down palisades and completely cut off that character if they so choose. At two players and three players, four players, it becomes a really, really bitey game where there is a lot of player interaction based on where these palisades are going down, and there is some bluffing. It's a great, great little game. This isn't anything to write home about. It's not the greatest game ever. It's it's lost loot. It's not supposed to be that way. But I picked this up for 10 bucks at PAX Unplugged in the used game session. Still in shrink wrap, still brand new, which means this game has been in shrink wrap probably over 10 years at this point. I opened it up, learned it in like 5 minutes, and me and my wife played it twice that night with the di- with the various different powers and abilities. It's a treat of a game. Sometimes in board gaming, it's really hard to introduce the idea of asymmetry to people. You as a player can do something different than what I can do as a player. That's hard to introduce. You look at games like Root, which are great asymmetric games. That's almost impossible to introduce to a new player. Armadora, however, fantastic for introducing to new people. It is very simple. On your turn, place a hero down that strong near a gold pile you want, and then place some palisades. Or maybe it can be a little tricky. Place a weak player there saying, I really don't want to go for this one, but I'm going to make you think I am. There's a great little mind game that goes on between these players who are trying to place down their warriors. This game definitely shows its age, though. Lots of newer players who are into this giant hobby scene may find this game to be a little bit dull, maybe a little dry. Not much theme. Could get tired of really quickly. And that's a total reasonable critique of this. What I find charming about Armador, why I believe it's lost loot, because... It represents what I believe the best of the gaming scene 10 or 20 years ago. A game that is very simple to get into, that you can teach other people, but still has the quality that brings to life the imagination of the players. You know, you're different factions, you're the goblins trying to build these fences and block people from off, but the enemy's still getting in, you're trying to fight them back. But you don't know if you might be strong enough to defeat them yet, we won't until the end of the game. So there's this delightful little tension in it that really pays off near the end when you realize, oh, my plan worked, or oh no, my plan didn't work. It's delightful. Completely charming. It is, it's the only way I can describe this game being as charming. For something that came out 20 years ago, and it wasn't really expounded upon beyond that 2003-2013 gap between Nuggets and Armadora, it is great. You know, the gaming scene has rapidly progressed over the last, you know, 10 years, and this was definitely meant to be kind of a lighter game. It's a blue-orange game. Blue-orange is known for making not the heaviest of games. And I think this one fell by the wayside because it has a really dry theme of just fantasy. The components are nothing to scream about. It's just literally yellow cubes, some punch-out chits, and some wood, like Carcassonne wood road pieces, and some paper screens. Nothing to really write home about. The production is not amazing on this. 
But what's hiding behind it is really fun, solid gameplay that you can sit down and crack out in 20 minutes. And sometimes you need just a 20-minute game that gives you a little mind think, not too much rules overload, but still has some variability with the asymmetry. With Perlodora coming out, I'm actually really interested in seeing what they've expounded upon. I hope they have added to the system, because I do believe there is a lot there to explore with making your own areas, placing down warriors stratego style, and trying to figure out how much, I guess in Perlodora's case, how much pearls you can get. I really do think that this game deserves more attention. I'm really glad to be seeing it re-implemented in Perlodora. Now, I don't think Perlodora is available in the United States right now, but if you can find in your flea markets at their board game conventions or whatever, I'd recommend picking up a copy of Amador for the right price. It doesn't take up too much self room. It's absolutely charming. It reminds you of like, it's kind of like a warm cup of hot chocolate that reminds you of days of yore when you were a kid and you wanted to play just a simple game. It, a simpler time for your board game journey. Absolutely great. Well, listeners, that's it for me today for Lost Loot. I'm going to let you get back to the level back episode. But remember, when you're looking at a game that has just recently come out, and you maybe don't know where it came from, look on the Board Game Geek page, maybe see what it has re-implemented. And go back, and go back, because you never know when you might find some lost loot. And it's nice getting Explorer Josh in on it too with a level back, going back to 2013 for Armadora, based on Nuggets from 2003, going way back he is exploring. Josh, thank you so much. I don't care if you're not here or not, Josh, you're still an ignorant slut. <laughs> wow. And here I was about to thank him for letting me know about a game I've never heard of before. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, it's that time. We've come to the end of our Level Back episode 85. We're going to end it like we always do. How we leveled up since we last met. I'll kick this one off with a simple one. That giant meetup that we had at the vault had over 60 gamers. I think the final count was like 68. That's our record. We've done about a dozen of these meetups over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, we, we hit our record in November and then we promptly broke it in January. So very pleased uh, if you made it out to the meetup. I know we don't get the opportunity to talk to everyone and interact as much as we'd like. What with having to, you know, maintain the the, the, the tables that we had, the food, the, the contests and playing games ourselves. But believe me, we really appreciate that folks come out and, and get to enjoy each other's time, company and games. Big meetup. Man, that's a that's a feel good moment. Ryan. So well, I had the pleasure of meeting somebody who came to buy some games off of me. It was only going to be two at the time, and I was selling a lot of my games uh, on my offload shelf. And he was asking around, and he was like, I have uh, very young kids. Uh, I have They are three and five years old. And I'm trying to find out if there are any games that they might like uh, that you have for sale that you could recommend. And I looked around, and... You know, I, I saw uh, no games on my offloading shelf, but then I did look up and I saw my game of Ice Cool. And I was like, well, my son doesn't play this, so I could give you Ice Cool. And he was like, oh, cool, how much? And I was like, ah, just throw another dollar on it. And so oh. he, so I gave him the game of Ice Cool for a dollar because, you know, he seemed really, really interested in games for his kids. And I'm all for that, too, having a, a young one myself. And I can't wait for him to start playing, too. So he goes home. An hour goes by, 
and I, I get a message. And my message is, hey, here's a picture of my kids playing iSchool. Oh, been, how about that? They've been doing this for about a half an hour so far, and they are loving it. And I was like, that is adorable. Your kids are adorable. Five hours goes by. I get a message again from the same guy. And he was like, did you know that my kids have been playing this this entire time? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? And he was like, they're, they're not putting it down. Like, but we're, we're going for dinner now. So they're going to have to put it down then, but they've been playing this since I got home and gave it to them. And I was like, isn't that worth a dollar? <laughs> that is I'll totally, buy that for a dollar. That is, yeah. <laughs> that is, it just, again, like having, having kids of my own, it is a joy to have uh, a smile on a kid's face and to watch them have a good time and playing these games and this hobby. This hobby has a game for anyone, even three-year-olds, five-year-olds. And mm-hmm. to have provided that amount of entertainment to somebody's family just puts a lot of joy on my face. And so you know, I, I feel like I leveled up emotionally because of that. What you got, King? No, I got to follow that. Wow, that was just a great story there. My level back, I go back to my years in college and being in a fraternity and liking comic books and board games and yeah all these things here you don't do in a fraternity nerd it's now however many years later we're actually having a weekend we're going to get a bunch of us together and play board games because everyone is getting into this hobby uh i'm going to a poker weekend and they want me to bring board games for people that don't want to play poker it's like they've caught up to me and it's just wonderful and it's it's great to bring these games out, introduce them to new people. Like you said, Ryan, you had it with kids. This is bringing it out to my friends I went to college with that I've uh, known for years and years. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing to do to open up people's minds to playing board games. Great time. That's how I leveled up. Hey, Adventures. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on today's episode 85, a big old level back. If you didn't get the opportunity to listen to last week's side quest episode, we were talking our favorite games and the best games of 2022. Scott, let's sign off this way. What's the best candy bar? Oh, best candy bar. It's the uh, Reese's uh, Crispy Crunchy Peanut Butter Bar. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, Always do what you can to level up.